Hi, you're listening to An Open Dialogue. I'm Violet Howe. And I'm Todd Gandalf. And we are back. We are back. We after, are back. I mean, nobody, I guess, really knew that we were on break, but we were kind of on break. And yeah, we recorded ahead of time we because did, I, yes. I was on an author cruise and you were... I was on Baby Watch. I was yes. waiting. You know, we... Um, we were we've been waiting and and uh, in our family we're not we never expect babies to arrive on their due date none of us have and none of mine did and so when january 6 came and went nobody was less surprised than i was but um, i'm happy to report that a week later on january 13th delia joy joined our family Yay. Um, yes she was she was born uh early in the morning on um on January 13th, which is was a Sunday, and um, I was able to be there, which was not a planned situation, but um, it, it did work out, and she is beautiful and very, very smart and um, adorable, <laughs> and, you know, I'm very aware. That was the thing that got me was she was born, and I was right by the bed, and they put her on my daughter, and I said, oh, my goodness, look at you, and she lifted her head and looked at me like, hey there. Gotcha. And she was she was like looking around like, okay, who's here? All right, you're here, you're here. Okay. Yeah, I recognize your yeah. voice. I you're recognize cool. your voice. Yeah. yeah. And just uh, is very and is still very um very much Alert. aware of that. Yeah. Very, yeah. very, you know, turns her head, whatever. Yesterday I began indoctrinating her into football. Uh, you know, wasn't a great day for it, but she <laughs> she's still, you know, so yeah, so it was a it was it was a, a wonderful. Um, it's been a wonderful week. She was a week old yesterday, and, and we spent a lot of time. Uh, my uh, third daughter, who was uh, scheduled to go back to Maine for her last semester of college last Saturday, had at the last minute said, "No, no, no, no. I don't think I can miss this because we we had some indications that perhaps that you know labor was imminent. Right. And and so she at the last minute said, "No, no, no, no." I'm, I'm staying. And so she didn't actually go back until this past Saturday. So I had a bonus week with my third daughter. Plus, we had all the time with the baby. So it was a lot of good family time. Good, um, good. Yeah. I wondered if, if she ended up being able to make it because I know that was a concern was that she was gonna have to go back and then exactly. um, and miss that event. So no, she was not only there, she um, actually came to sit in the waiting room with me and so was the first outside of mommy and daddy and me to see the baby she actually Aww. got to come in for a few minutes before we all went home and collapsed because we'd been up all night so you know we, we were very tired um so yes yeah, so she she was very happy that she had that time and is um she said she was never so tempted to drop out of college though as she was Aww. as she was holding that baby she said you know i can just no, I'll just come home and, and be an auntie. But <laughs> but she's back in Maine where it's cold and I think it's it's two degrees there right now and uh, oh yeah and and they're expecting more snow today. So anyway, but it, it was um, it, it brought up a lot of interesting things. I had uh, a lot of readers who were very invested. I had readers saying to me, you know, uh, when is that baby coming? When you know what are what's happening they wanted to know and of course i uh, trying to respect my daughter's privacy and, and everything i just tried to um be circumspect about what i shared but then once the baby came well i wanted everybody you know to know to know but, yeah but still again trying to to walk that boundary between respecting this is not my child 
You know, right. I, I right. have always shared about my kids and, and their names and their occupations and where they are and what have you. But this is not my child. And so I'm I'm sharing, but I'm trying to share in a thoughtful way that um, does not violate anybody's uh, anybody's privacy. Um, and and it, it but it's it's been very interesting to me how invested perfect strangers uh, and or readers, because I don't necessarily look at readers as perfect strangers, but are in. Imperfect in strangers. Yes. No, I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in personal lives. And it, it was, uh, um, it, it, that thinking about that and being aware of that. And then at the same time that uh, we were waiting for the baby, I read the latest uh, book from one of my favorite authors. I've been reading this, this author for 29 years, and I know 29 years because my husband, I read the first book that of hers, my husband gave it to me on my birthday after my daughter who just had the baby was born. So I know it's, it's you know, right about 29 years that, that, um, that I've been reading her, and she writes historical mysteries. Um, her name's Ann Perry, and uh, um, I, I love her writing. I, I Particularly, she writes two different, well, actually, she writes three different series, but the two that are, are set that are most famous are uh, one about a couple who solve murders. Um, he's a police detective. He starts out as a police detective. Um, and, and the other is about uh, another uh, detective set, I think, about 30 years previous to, to the one, the series that I read. And in the course of that, I looked up to see where, when the next book was coming out, and I was reminded of something I don't know whether anybody else does this, but I can know something and kind of forget it. <laughs> right, right. And I, uh, I looked up and, and saw a link for something that I, I did not expect. Anne Perry, and this is not, I'm not outing anything. You can, this is all available on the internet. If anybody wants to read it, discuss it. Anne Perry actually is the, um, not the author's original name. She was born Juliet Holm and uh, was infamous in her early years uh, because when she was 15 years old she and her best friend killed the best friend's mother wow um, yeah in new zealand um I in actually, real life in not real fiction life. not in, in a novel yes yes wow and um she she served five years in prison um in new zealand and then went to England, went to America for a while, uh, lived in California for a bit, um, changed her name. Um, it, it's a very interesting case with, with details and, and a lot of speculation. And it's, it's the, the book I read uh, is available. It's, it's called Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century. Um, so if you want to read about it in, in great, great detail, that book is available. Um, at least it was at my library. But it, it did... It, in. Kind of juxtaposed with another uh, very more recently revealed author drama. It kind of made us think, didn't it? it is true yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how, um, I, I, I mean, you can very easily, you know, Google literary scandals or author scandals and, and, and see that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. I wonder sometimes if people who are writers or, you know, artists, actresses, musicians, etc. I wonder if sometimes that lends itself more to having 
drama and personal lives? You know what I mean? Is there something about the creative mind? Is there something about the imaginative mind that bleeds over into real life? Or is it the other way around? Is it, you know, the people who have these um, incredibly dramatic lives or these circumstances that that then, you know, feeds the creativity to to create art or to create fiction? Um, or are the two not connected at all? Because obviously there's people who have a lot of scandal in their lives who are not artists. So I don't know. I don't know either. I, 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 you have to think that there's a lot of authors out there who live very normal, quiet, humdrum, boring lives. I mean, I, I kind of think mine is, is, fairly, is, is fairly uninteresting on a daily basis. But um, it does seem to be that maybe, maybe there is a connection between, uh, you know, I, I'm somebody who's, who's drawn to drama, so I end up writing it, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, right. You know, in this case, in the, in the Anne Perry case, they actually were writers um, at, at the, you know, the young writers before they conceived of the murder. And part one element of this whole case uh, is that they had an extremely rich fantasy life. And there's some speculation. There, there's a lot of different angles to this case, and it would take several podcasts to go over it. But um, one of the angles was that their fantasy life was so rich that the murder just became part of it and that they got so caught up in it that it, it didn't even uh, really occur to them that the, that the murder was real. Um, although they did not, they were not found, they had tried a, uh, a, an insanity defense, and neither of them were found to be insane. So. Has she spoken out about it publicly? She has, yes. Well, actually, yes. The, the, there was a movie. Uh, this, is, this case is still talked about in New Zealand. Uh, this, it's, it took place in a town called Christchurch, New Zealand, which maybe I'm mispronouncing it, but it's, it's spelled Christchurch. Maybe it's Christchurch. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, it's, it's still very well known. And Peter Jackson, the famous movie maker, producer, uh, made a movie in the 90s called Heavenly Creatures and it's based on it's based on the story and at that point nobody knew what had happened to either of them nobody you know nobody had any idea that the famous uh, historical uh, detective writer Anne Perry was even remotely connected to this case and um, as a couple of people not only Peter Jackson but some other people begin doing some investigation it it came out, you know, by that time it was not, it was, would have been hard to hide that kind of thing. And, um, and she did address it. She actually, um, spoke about it. She, um, in the, in the book that I read, she spun it in a way that seems perhaps slightly disingenuous, but, uh, I mean, what would you do? Right. How would right. you, it, it was, it was gruesome. Uh, you, what would you say? Well, you know, <laughs> I did it. I was a teenager, you know, teens do crazy things. Like, I, I don't know. I yeah. don't know how you would spend she, that. She said that she was very sorry. She said that she'd been repentant. Um, there was not really a lot of evidence of that in, in her life immediately following either the murder or her incarceration. Um, she, she kind of gave a very, um, a, 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 an image that made it look much more sympathetic to her. Right. Um, she did not have contact with the other girl who had been her closest friend and they had had kind of an obsessive relationship from somebody, everything that I read and everything that I have, have seen about it seems to uh, agree with that. So 
uh, you know, again, they had, but they, but they were writers before that was one of their um, goals was actually to move to Hollywood and become movie writers. That was one of the reasons that they killed the mother was so that they could do that. Um, in, in the early 50s, uh, movies were everything, you know, and, right, and they had right. built up a very, very rich fantasy life around a couple of different movie actors and had a uh, an entire world constructed where they were part of it. So um, I don't know, maybe because we are more tend, we, we are, we do tend more toward the fantastic. Do we have more drama in our lives? Maybe. I don't know. And, and I do think it, it's interesting to me, like, like you said, they got caught up in the fantasy and begin, begin living it out. And, and I feel like there's been, you know, several cases in history where someone creates probably what originally began as, as some type of escape, mm -hmm. you know, from whatever their life was, whether their life was mundane or whether it was abusive or whether it was, you know, painful, like whatever it is, they create some type of escape. And then at some point, the lines be begin to blur, you right. know, and I know <clears throat> we talked a little bit about there's a lot of people, well, not a lot, I don't know, I know of a few who have written memoirs, <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> who have written memoirs, and then it been revealed yes. um, that those memoirs were not accurate or were fake or, or in some cases were just completely made up. And I wonder how much of that is, did they set out with an intent of, I'm going to write this story, I'm going to say it's true, and I'm going to dupe people? Or is it something where in their mind, this is the, the memories they created or the life they created? I know, you know, I know like looking back on my own childhood, there are things that I remember from the viewpoint of a child mm -hmm. and maybe I didn't have all the information or maybe I didn't have all the facts or maybe you know I didn't have an understanding of what was going on and sometimes as an adult you hear a family member mention what happened or they tell what happened and you're like what that's that's what happened you know you know what I mean because yes. we remember it differently based on our point of view of what happened and so I wonder sometimes with these memoirs if people just if their memories kind of took on a life of their own you know, and yeah. then and then eventually they were convinced that that was truth or uh, yeah. was it a malicious uh, endeavor? Uh, it's I, I doubt very often. I, maybe I'm naive, but I doubt very often these, these things are malicious. I do think that, you know, I've, I've always held to the, the fact that if we don't tell children the truth, they will create something even worse because right. children, um, you're right, they see things from a certain point of view. And I know myself the same thing, that I assumed certain things when I was growing up that later was told by my parents, oh, no, 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 that wasn't the case. But it became so much a truth in my mind that trying to unknow that truth is very hard, you know. Um, it's kind of like when you learn the real lyrics to a song and your mind right. cannot stop singing it the other absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And it's the same thing. But I would imagine that it's more a um, more self-delusion. If uh, if you were going to write your if you were going to write your memoir, do you think that you would be able to be brutally honest about everything? Um, while everybody is still alive? <laughs> no, definitely not. And I and I think in some ways you because of what you just said I think in some ways you color it 
because you don't want to hurt people or because you don't want, you know, to bring scandal upon people. I think in other ways, we look back on things with rose colored glasses that, you know, maybe someone in our family, um, we had a different relationship with them than what was perceived. And I think too, sometimes we, we look back with with, you know, motives of revenge or motives of, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I think that um, it's an interesting question, but is it being brutally honest or is it telling it the way you remember it? Yeah. In which case is anyone's memoir ever actually uh, brutally honest or completely accurate? Or yes, is it simply yeah. what they remember? I think a memoir has to be seen as one person's interpretation of events because um, we all know that we can we can have five people in the same room and they're going to see things completely differently. They right. bring their experiences. And, and uh, you know, this, this was something we were talking about um, over the weekend, actually, with, um, I, I had sent my oldest daughter who just had the baby a, an article that I'd read that said that parents, old, parents do have favorite children and that it's often the oldest child. But then it went on to say, you know, no, it's not really a favorite. It's just different relationships. And I pointed out that, each of us as parents, if we have multiple children, our relationship with each child is slightly different because we are different people when we have that child. Right. We are in different circumstances. Mine was And of course, married. each one of those children has their own personality exactly. and their own likes and dislikes. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah. And so I, I think that it would be the same way with, with memoir writing is that um, I would write... Let, let's, let's just take... Let's just take... Let's take a trip to... To Ohio, and let's oh have Lord. you write it, and I'll write it, and then we'll see how it comes out. Yeah, no, I mean, that's... really, really anything, or even let's let's even take something a lot more boring. Let's take last year's Indie Book Fest. I bet my memoir of it would be very different than yours. Too. I think your memoir of that would have a lot of blank pages uh, because you were like was basically yes. locked away in a room. Exactly. Sick. But th that's the point: is that a lot of times. Um, I, I think it is true, and people may come at it with the most um, the most golden of of intentions, the most pure of intentions, and still get it wrong. Um, because I think, well, I think we see things from how it affects us. It, we do, you exactly. know, from how that made me feel, yes. or from what that sparked in me. And yes. so, someone else who who was also involved in the situation would have completely different feelings or completely different memories um, of that. You know, I know that, you know, I've had. Um, people where I've gone to them and said, you know what, you know, when you said this, it really hurt my feelings or it really bothered me. And then I'm like, oh, well, I didn't mean it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's so something that was really big for me, something that really affected me and bothered me to that other person. They didn't mean it the way I took it. And so it was no big deal exactly. at all. They didn't give it a second thought. And so exactly. those might be things, you know, that would show up. Exactly. Now, now of course, you also have, um, there was the guy, was it Clifford Irving? I think was his name, uh, so. who um, was going to write an authorized um, autobiography of Howard Hughes and claimed that he had all of these meetings and interviews with Hughes, who, of course, was very famously reclusive. And um, come to find out, he made all of it up. Like he forged all these notes. He, he made up all these notes from interviews and all these notes from meetings. And he, he made up and forged letters from Hughes and all these things. And, and it all came out as, as false. Howard Hughes had never met him and had never talked to him. So some people go beyond the, this is the way I see it in my memory, yeah. to, yeah, I just completely made this shit up. Like it's, <laughs> none of this is true. Right. And what I found interesting was he actually served time in prison. Yes. I don't understand. I, I don't understand that. 
I, I well, it was it was fraud and forgery. I mean, he well, basically forgery, yes, I guess yeah, it, it was, and I, and I believe, and I can look it up really quick to see exactly what he served for. But I'm almost positive that was it, it was because conspiracy. he actually it was forged notes from Howard yeah. Hughes. You know, he he said that these were correspondences from Howard, right. and they were not. Yeah, um, I, I guess I, I think that that walks a fine line of because as as writers, you know, I guess there's part of me that says, well, I I don't know. I, and I guess I have read books before where I, I they come out and say at the end something like, "Well, this is how I, I would have done it," or you know, "This is this is how it would have been if this in fact was true." I, I have actually read books where people have it looks like it's a memoir or it looks like it's a telling of something, and then at the end they say, "Well, you know." This, this is my interpretation of what it might have been if it was true. And I always feel a little duped by that. I want it to be, right. you know. Right. So, so I guess I can understand that. Well, what was the, um, what was, the, okay, I, I just, I did look this up. Um, I think it, what he went to jail for was because he kind of swindled the publisher. Yeah, well, that, um, uh, that I can understand. Yeah, the yeah, publisher is, had, had right. given him $750,000 yes. Yes. Um, under the pretense that the checks were going to Mr. Hughes right. through Mr. Irving. However, that you know, is, he was, that he is was taking the money. That is so. completely understandable. That one, I will I will say, yes, that, that one is completely understandable. Uh, but there what is, about the um, Melissa McCarthy movie that came out um, last year, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And it was about an author who um, an author and journalist who had written you know several books or whatever and she wrote um, she wrote a book I believe it was about Estee Lauder and it didn't do well like it completely flopped and um, she was broke was you know was living paycheck to paycheck and and the paychecks had kind of stopped and, and she didn't have anything and so she began to forge letters from um, famous authors who, you know, were long deceased and, and sell them as like collector's items. And, um, she ended up getting, um, she ended up, you know, being found out and the FBI, uh, investigated her and she ended up being arrested for forgery. Wow. And, um, I'm trying to look up the... Lee Israel. Yay. Yeah. 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 Lee Israel. Um, and she even even until her death she was never really apologetic for what she had done she thought that that was her best work like she really thought that you know what she had done had been her most creative work and um yeah so um so yeah sometimes it's not just foggy memories sometimes it's an it it is a malicious effort to deceive people we know that that poor oprah she right. must just have the, the, the just purest heart, I have to say, because she has been deceived more than once. Yes. Um, the, most, the most famous in the first was the James Frey. Right? Frey, yeah, Frey, Frey. Yeah, I keep her, yeah. I, I go back and forth. Um, that, you know, that uh, he wrote a fictionalized memoir, A Million Little Pieces, which then got him on the New York Times. And, uh, you know, he... He came out that that it was not true, that it was that that they were embellished or fictionalized entirely, right? Yeah. So, you know that was that was a a big thing, and then I guess she got tricked again with um, Angel at the Fence. And it that was, was an, the one with the Holocaust romance, that was the right? One with the Holocaust, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
So I don't know. Uh, and then the, uh, another very famous one that I don't believe Oprah had anything to do with was Greg Mortensen's uh, Three Cups of Tea. Um, that was about the, the schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan um, that they were non-existent. He, he fabricated a book about about these, uh, his experiences. These were supposed to be schools that he founded right. he or that founded he created, or right? Supported, yes, over a hundred of them, or over one hundred and seventy of them, and um, and he, they were either unsupported or non-existent. And he fabricated much of his memoir, and uh, his co-author actually committed suicide, which you know is that's that's very serious. And apparently, he had no idea about it. The the co-author did not, which. You know, if you get a storyteller who's who's convincing enough, I can understand that, you know. Right. Um, but it's, right. it's, you know, it's fascinating that people are so, that authors can be so driven um, to, to have a kind of success and a kind of recognition that they are willing to, you know, make things up that they're willing to and, and where do they cross the line where do they know that they've crossed the line that's interesting you know well and it's interesting too because obviously um you and i both you know make our living writing fiction so where does it become that point where they're like you know what i'm gonna write fiction and claim that it's that it's nonfiction, you know in order mm -hmm. to be successful like what you know where does that decision i don't, I don't know, know. I usually go the other way. I, I know nonfiction. I write it as fiction so that I can get away with writing it. <laughs> no, I have no idea. This was not based. It's not, it's not a coincidence. That was not based at all on your character. Huh. Which, which really brings up an interesting point. I, I don't think that there's... Like, it, it's interesting because I think all of us as fiction writers incorporate people that we meet, people that we encounter, people in our family, people that we've had relationships with, real life things that happen, an encounter that we have at, you know, the fast food counter, like whatever, those things get incorporated into our writing. But it's not always like an exact representation. It's not always an exact, you know, retelling of what happened. It's just, you know, kind of threads of truth that are woven into the fiction that you create. And I, I think that that kind of begs the question, how, how much of our stories are actually original? You know what I mean? With all the movies we see, with all the books that we read, with all of the different um, encounters that we have, and, and a lot of writers try to work within popular tropes or popular, you know, quote unquote formulas, like, you know, the, the billionaire boyfriend or the surprise pregnancy or the best friends, you know, lovers or the, right. the pretend fiance, like different things. At what point do stories stop being original? That's a tough one. Um, and, and that's very interesting. And, and kind of a, a side note to, well, we've seen this in the last few years, um, particularly, I think, as, as indie publishing has become huge, but also just within publishing as, a, as an overall world. We've seen authors sue other authors for ideas. And right. For, and I'm not even talking about last year's uh, title debacle. I'm talking about actual ideas where they said, well, you you took the spirit of my story. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's such a fine line. It's such a fine line there because I will admit that there, I have read books 
and thought to myself, well, I'm very unhappy with the ending of this book. Now, I would never go and rewrite a book that I didn't like the ending, but I might take an idea from it and say, what if this happened? And, and it becomes an entirely, it, it's not at, at, at all uh, related to the first you know, the first one, but I, I think we find our ideas are sparked everywhere. And if we are authors, we are probably readers. And yes, we're going to, we probably without knowing it, we are incorporating some things. Well, I think that if it is very clearly, well, obviously, sometimes people just lift the words off the page. Right. I, I cannot remember the, the names of the two authors involved, but there were two well-known romance authors and readers discovered that yeah. the one romance author was literally lifting entire passages word for word yeah. from the other author's books and incorporating them into her writing. Um, and so sometimes the plagiarism is very blatant and very like, you know, word for word, they're picking it up. Um, I think other times it is something where you're, you're taking that storyline, you're taking that idea and copying it. And then there becomes this little blurry line of when is it fan fiction? that's kind of an homage to the story and when are you actually copying that story in order to profit from it exactly yeah and that that is again that does become a fun i mean we all know that the most famous of our generation is probably um twilight the the fan fiction uh, from twilight uh, morphing into 50 shades of gray which right is if you are a reader of twilight it was not difficult to see where those things, where, where the, the similarities were and where they lay. However, it was, it was um, clearly set in a non-paranormal world. It was set in a billionaire world and it was, you know, a whole different, uh, a whole different genre of, of story and certainly much more sexualized than Twilight was. Oh yeah, <laughs> most definitely. So, I mean, that, that's there. And that was, I don't think she ever tried to, um, I don't think she ever tried to to pull it off as anything but that she was unapologetic about why you know where that came from. So I you know maybe that's part of it. Um, I'm very aware of this only because I tend to be a sponge reader writer. Whatever I am, if I'm watching a British show, I have to be careful because my characters would come across sounding very British, even if they right. live in the deep South. Um, and, and the same thing, if I'm reading a book that is set in the South, I will notice some of those things bleed through. Um, I try to be very mindful of not um, reading books that are similar to books that I have planned for a year. Like if I, if I, I love to read sports romance, but if I uh, see that, that my favorite author is releasing a book that it's going to be at all close to what I'm planning to write. I will not read it until my book is, is done. I just don't, I think that's, I think that that's a, a protection. You know, I, I, I will not do that. Um, well, because you don't want to accidentally exactly. pick something up. That's you know what I mean? Like yes. I, I, I fully firmly believe you're not the type of person who would purposely go, Oh, that's great. Let me just exactly. include it in my book. No. But you don't want to be like, you know, the, uh, the, the thing with, um, um, Helen Keller. Oh, Helen Keller yes. was accused of plagiarism. Yes. And, and as it turns out, once it was revealed that her short story was, was very similar to another short story, she concluded that at some point that story must have been read to her and then she kind of uh, absorbed it, you know, and, and used it in her own story. And so I think as writers, we have to be careful of that because obviously you're always looking for inspiration. You're always looking for things that spark a story idea. True. And so you want to make sure that whatever sparks the story idea is not someone else's story that's already been written exactly um yeah 
And, and I will say so. my grandmothers had, um, uh, my one grandmother especially, would um, take stories that she had read, I didn't know this until years later, and tell them to me. And she would never attribute them. She would not say, you know, this is this is a retelling of this. You know, I was I was right. a child, and it it was years later that I actually found out that oh well, you know, she didn't make this up. This came from this book that she had read or that book she had read. Right. So um, you know, we we might be told things, and and our our forebears might not have attributed them correctly, and we assume that we're just telling Nana's story again. So. I do want to bring up before we before we close out, um, I do want to bring up one more aspect of truth being stranger than fiction. Um, I do think that when we are writing or reading fiction, we hold things up to some type of plausibility test. And obviously we can suspend reality, but we don't want it to suspend reality to the point that it's no longer plausible. It's no longer believable. Um, you know, I can go and watch a Mission Impossible movie and obviously could Tom Cruise do everything that he's doing in that movie? No. But if they get so outlandish, there was one in particular where there was like a helicopter flying inside a tunnel behind a train and like then then all of a sudden you've lost me. You've pulled me out of the story because it's too unrealistic, you know. Um, but it's really funny how a lot of times it, we're watching something that is based on a true story and it's so implausible that it would never float as fiction. Um, we just recently finished watching the 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 miniseries, I guess it would be called, um, Dirty John. Okay. And when we watched the first episode, I watched it because it had Connie Britton and, and Eric mm -hmm. Bana, and, and it sounded like an interesting premise. And the story, for those of you who don't know, is, is about a woman who um, met a man online dating. He seemed to be the, you know, end-all, do-all, Prince Charming. And as in all things, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. They married very quickly. I think they had only known each other eight weeks when they married. And after they married, she found out that he was um, a drug addict, that he had lost his nursing license for stealing drugs from patients, that he had numerous restraining orders and, and stalking complaints from, from women, just a whole line of women that he had um, milked and gotten things from and, and you know, used. And, um, and then she had a really hard time getting away from him and, and becoming unattached from him. And it's funny because when we watched the first episode, I didn't realize it was based on a true story. And the whole time I'm watching this episode, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. Oh, no, there's no way. And, and I really, I, I told John, like, I thought it was really bad writing because there's just no way. And then at the end, like it mentioned, you know, this is based on, on actual events, but it's been, you know, fictionalized or whatever. And so I went online to search and look up, okay, what were the actual events? And yeah, the parts that I found most <laughs> implausible were true. Um, same thing with the movie The Mule that recently oh, came out yes. with Clint Eastwood. Yes. The whole time we're watching the movie, and I knew it was somewhat based on a on a true story, but you know, with Hollywood, right. they take like little threads of a true story and then they, you know, they create this whole entire movie that who knows how much of it's based in truth. And there were just things in that movie that I was like, oh, there's no way. There's no way that they wouldn't see his truck. There's no way that he would think he could do this. There's no way. And again, when I went on and, and kind of Googled the true story about the real guy who's the oldest mule known, you know, I think he's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest drug mule. But um, 
the parts that I found most implausible were the parts that were the most accurate. So I think it's funny how sometimes the, the bar that we set for plausibility in fiction is, is much higher or much harder to attain than truth. Truth truly is stranger than fiction. And things that happen in real life, we would never accept in a fictionalized account or, or we would question how realistic it is in a fictionalized account. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree. I would absolutely agree. And I am one of those people who, who like you, if I know something is based in, in truth, I'm immediately, I want to know exactly where, after we watched um, Bohemian Rhapsody, I wanted yes. to know everything. Like I wanted, okay, was yes. this, I, I knew, I already knew that some of it because I, I from, from my own memory, but I went back and said, aha, yes, this was, this was wrong, whatever. So it's, it is, it's, it's fascinating. And um, yeah, truth, truth probably is a lot stranger than I than fiction. I've had, um, I've actually had people say to me, you know, well, well, this, if I've been telling a story that is true, um, at an event or, or, uh, you know, at some kind of uh, talking, speaking engagement, um, and they, they will say, well, you, you made that up, didn't you? Nope. <laughs> that's <not laughs> Nope. That one's true. That's, that's, that's true. So, yeah. Um, I think part of that is because when we are writing fiction, in some ways we do police ourselves yeah. or in some ways our editors police us. You know, we're actually checking to see if it sounds plausible. We're checking to see if it holds water. We're yeah. checking to see if it, if it makes sense in the flow of the story. And in real life, that doesn't happen. No. You know, nobody's checking us. People can be <laughs> as whacked out as possible. People can be as crazy as possible. People can lie to unbelievable extents. People can make really, really stupid choices in real life. <laughs> that, that in I fiction... Think is what you we just would, hit on. We would check. It's the choices. That's what you just, what you just hit on may be the key to it all because it's the choices that, that we look at fictionalized characters and think nobody would ever make that choice. And yet people right. are making bad choices all the time. I mean, right. go back to this Ann Perry thing. The fact that she and her friend, you know, premeditated this murder and did it. Yes, they were 15 years old, so they didn't, you know, maybe didn't have all the... Uh, all the the basic you know um, frontal lobe yes, wasn't fully yes, developed exactly. etc didn't have all the equipment that they needed but still i've had i'd raised four children past the age of 15 and not one of them has killed me yet knock wood so i'm going to say that there that it's possible um you know it's it's uh, yeah it's it is it's the choices and i think that that goes back to um when we do make choices for our fictional people are we being true to them um, at the expense of the plot or vice versa. I think that, that that is something that we can see happen in fiction. Are we? Which is somewhat of a fine line because, because you want your character to be realistic and have realistic flaws. Yeah. And, um, and, and like for my character Sloane, for instance, in the Cedar Creek series, she does some really stupid stuff. <laughs> but I do feel like the her, decisions. I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the decisions she makes are are true to her and who she is. In her mind, it's not stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. In her mind, she's going to be able to handle it, or it makes sense. Or in usually, she's moment. doing it because she thinks she's saving someone else or protecting yes. someone else by doing it. And in that moment, it makes sense to her, and it might yes. not make because we're not in that moment, even if right. we are reading about it. Yes, I agree. Right, and we don't have her background and her experiences right. and her way of thinking yeah. you know we're seeing things from our point of view yeah. um but i do think i mean you know you watch some of these like 
uh, I don't know, you know, the world's dumbest criminals or like some of these things where you see these. And unfortunately, so many of them are always from Florida. It's just like, I think we have a higher uh, proportion of dumb criminals or people who do really stupid things in Florida, unfortunately. But um, some of these things that you watch, like we would never allow a character to do that. Or, yeah. or like even going past my editor, my editor would never allow a character to do yeah. some of these things that people do in real life. Yeah. You know, my, um, I, I had an instance where she lied to the hero and she lied to the hero because she thought she was doing something to, to protect him. And my editor had a really hard time with it. She's like, no, you can't let her lie to the hero. That's just not a good character trait. You know, and, and well, no, it's not, but it's realistic. Yeah. You know, people, unfortunately, have flaws. Um, do that yeah and and so I kind of like stuck to my guns and 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 kept the lie in there but um but yeah I I do think you're right that the choices that human beings make with a character there are people second guessing those choices the writer the editor even you know the beta readers Mm -hmm. even the readers who then later review the book there are so many people who are second guessing the choices that the characters make and with a real person unfortunately they can make those choices (laughs) and affect the lives of many (laughs) many people without any kind of you know editor or or you know, author constructor going, Hey, you may not want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's true. I I've had, I've had beta readers come back and say to me, this does not seem plausible or this does not seem likely. I said, well, right. that happened in real life. And then they'll right. come back and say, yes, but it's, a, it's the same thing that if I use a, a particular um, turn of phrase that is very familiar to me, but takes one of my readers out of it, I usually replace right. that. Even though I know it's used correctly, I know it's the right thing to say there, I know that even that character would say that, but if it's going to make a reader go, well, what the hell does that mean? Um, right. Especially if it's like some kind of regional exactly, dialect or, that I, or local colloquial colloquialism and I don't want that in there and so it's the same idea that if my beta reader says oh I'm sorry that's just even if it did happen in real life um because we hold fiction to a higher standard so yeah so I will I will usually take it out if it's if it's not something that is you know well we would love to hear from any of you because we know you guys have stories that are much stranger than fiction. <laughs> we know there's something either in your family or somebody you worked with or something that you read about that is a, is a case of truth being much stranger than fiction. And we would love to hear those. So you can reach out to us at anopendialogue1 at gmail.com or you can reach either one of us on social media. We are both on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Todra Candle and Violet Howe. And we appreciate you joining us. We do. And we have some good podcasts coming up in the next um, couple weeks, months. So please do subscribe. Do share. Yes, most definitely. Do share. If you enjoy what we're saying and you enjoy listening to us, then please share. Tell somebody else about the podcast or share it on your social media. That would be excellent. We appreciate it. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Yes. Thanks and have a great day, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.